Let's say a blessing for our study that we're about to do. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher kishanu b'mitzvotav v'tzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Amen. This is Parshat Vayechi, and he lived. That's what it means. And uh, it's the last Torah portion in Genesis. We've made our way through Genesis. And uh, Aviva Zornberg, whose book I've cited a few times in the course of the last week, uses it um, as a kind of way for her to summarize her whole approach to the book. Um, and one thing, I think she tells us that she, she, she has a beautiful excerpt from a Italo Calvino book that I think I'll read later to sort of end our class today. It's, it's perfect. And she also links that, which I'll get to later, to a line in Amos, the prophet Amos, one of the prophets in the uh, books of the prophets. One, one of the lines in it is, God says, Dershuni v'chayu, which usually is translated as, seek me and live. Uh, and Aviva Zornberg points out that lidrosh in Hebrew means to seek, to interpret, to question. It means all of those things. And that's why the word midrash is interpretation or what's the right English word for it? You know, it's, uh, it's hard to say. But, uh, the, but so she takes that line as um, other, the earlier rabbinic uh, presences have uh, uh, before. Um, the process of inquiry, interpretation, remembering, um, all of that uh, is lidrosh. And she says, so she's saying that seek me, interpret me, and the text will live, uh, as it were. And that's what we've been doing. And it's, it, there, and it never, it's never ending. It's absolutely never ending. So in this Torah portion, hi, Dan. Uh, in this Torah portion, Jacob has moved, at, in the last Torah portion, Jacob has moved down to Egypt and uh, is living the last 17 years of his life. And it says, Vayechi Yaakov Be'eretz Mitzrayim Shiva Esrei Shana. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt for 17 years. So if you think about Jacob's life, how old was Joseph when Joseph was abducted and uh, sent away? 17. 17, yeah. So there's some, in, in the saga here, that's intentional number choosing. It's almost like the 17 years he had Joseph, he was alive. And then in the intervening years, he wasn't. His spirit wasn't alive. And then for the last 17 years, he's alive again. And I think that's quite intentional in the way those numbers are begin and end the Joseph saga. 
So how old was he when Joseph was born? <laughs> well, if we want to be literal about it, we can calculate. Uh, was over 100. 100. Well, let's see. He was, he, Joseph was 17, and then he went into, down to Egypt for 20 years. Okay. And now there's 17 more years. So that's 20 seven. and 30, 54 years, which means he was 92, uh, three. So, Charlie Chaplin too. I, I think yeah right that's right. I think um, to make that point, everybody just take a look. This is one of my favorite little things here in this book. Take a look at page three twenty one for a moment, just to show you that our calculating well, our, is not the way that the writers of the Bible were calculating numbers. In the final, I'm reading where it says 110 years, on page 321. In the final account of Joseph's life, his lifespan is mentioned twice, as if to emphasize that this figure carried special significance. Not only was a life of 110 years considered ideal in Egypt, it also pointed to Joseph's subtle relationship to the patriarchs. Their lifespans can be schematized as follows. Abraham lived to be 175, which equals 7 times 5 squared. Isaac lives to be 180, which equals 6 times 6 squared. And Jacob lived to be 147, which is 3 times 7 squared. Adding the last column of 25, 36, and 49, he produced the figure 110 showing that Joseph should be seen as the true successor to the patriarchs. I'm showing you that because uh, a further meaning, Joseph, the one who caused his prophet people to leave the promised land, died at 110, and Joshua, the one who led them back, also died at 110. The reason I'm showing you that is that they don't know if, it doesn't matter if Jacob was 93 when Joseph was born, because that kind of counting is not important to these storytellers. They are doing number games mm -hmm. with all of these ages that somebody yep. was figuring out. You follow me? Did they know square back then? Sure, why not? They had time on their hands. <laughs> they were running around in traffic. They were looking at the stars at night. They didn't have anything else to do. They, they, had, they had time to think. What are the days of Pythagoras? Anybody know? When's Pythagoras? I don't know. Later. <laughs> but we can assume that these stories, not assume, we can make a reasonable guess that these stories took final form during the Babylonian exile. And the Babylonians were great mathematicians and astronomers, yeah. right? So uh, the Jews who lived in Babylonian culture would have certainly absorbed that and. Uh, uh, so the Egyptians had a lot of advanced, uh, te te you know, uh, mathematics. Also, oh, sure. right, yeah. right. So, Ar yeah, architecture. That's right. It's all numerical. That's right. Square this square, that square, architecture. So that's a little excursion, just to because we started talking about 147. Let's see how old was he. When I'm pointing out that the 17 and the 17 are the important numbers here. Uh, not uh, for what they represent, 
not for the exact count of years. That's the point I want to make. All right, so back to 306. We've dug into this in the past. This is Jacob's deathbed scene. And um, it's vivid. And the characterization is really rich. And so I'd like to read it all with you and then just have us bounce around and reflect on it and see what we think about it. So I'm on page 306, chapter, uh, verse 29. When Israel's time to die drew near, he summoned his son Joseph and said to him, If I have but found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and treat me with faithful kindness, chesed v'emet. Please do not bury me in Egypt. When I am laid to rest with my ancestors, carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he replied, I will do as you say. And he said, swear it to me. So Joseph swore it to him. Israel then bowed down at the head of the bed. After these things, feel free to interrupt me, by the way. After these things, they said to Joseph, look, your father is fading. So he took his two sons with him, Ephraim and Manasseh. When they told Jacob, saying, look, your son Joseph has come. Israel rallied and sat up in the bed. And here's what he says. Jacob said to Joseph, El Shaddai appeared to me in Luz, in the land of Canaan, and blessed me. When did that happen? Remember? Was the angel? No. Luz also, which gets renamed Bethel, Bethel, when he has the dream of the ladder. Mm -hmm. He's remembering. So I'm just picturing this very old man who rallies and the first thing he wants to say to his son is what seems to be maybe the most important experience of his life. Uh, and the most, the most penetrating, I should say. Uh, El Shaddai appeared to me in Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. Now, isn't it interesting? Remember all the saga about Jacob trying to get blessings and it's still on his consciousness. This is so poignant to me. Uh, if you follow what, what I, where I'm going, it's like, that's what he wants to say? God blessed me. Um, saying to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. I will make you a multitude of peoples, and I will give this land to your seed after you as an everlasting possession. Which is what God said at that, after he wakes up from the dream. I mean, during the dream, God says, and then he wakes up. Now then, your two sons, born to you in the land of Egypt, before I arrived in Egypt, they are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be to me like Reuben and Shimon. But your progeny, whom you engender after them, are yours. They will be called by their brother's names in their family allotment. So, He's giving Joseph a double portion. Um, it appears, right? He's saying, 
And that's why of the 12 tribes, we call two of them Ephraim and Manasseh. That's how they're listed, because it's not, there is no tribe of Joseph. There's a tribe, the 12 tribes that include the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. Um, so, uh, Rabbi, the, yeah. I'm just, I'm feeling a little ignorant right now, but That's can okay. you explain verse 6, what that sentence means? Uh, it means that any other children you have, Joseph, are not going to get a share of my inheritance. They will be oh, okay. your inheritors, and they'll either be Ephraim's clan or Menashe's okay, clan. See, thank you. Yeah. All right. A question. Yeah. What is the significance of their talking about Jacob and then Israel changing the destiny? We've thought about that a lot. You discussed it all. Uh, well, but we don't have an an- a definitive answer, so I'm glad you're bringing it up because there are going to be key shifts later too. in this portion, too. Okay. So it says Jacob lived in the land of Egypt for 17 years when Israel's time to die drew near. Uh, our, our favored theory which doesn't hold up all the time, is that Israel is Jacob in his most expansive uh, awareness. That because Jacob means devious, crooked, heel, and Yisrael means God wrestler or perhaps upright, Yashar, El. So the names mean very different things. Or even Yisrael could mean like um, from Sar, from um, uh, a um, kind of princeling of God. So Jacob has this very, this this very kind of negative name, and is, he gets the new name Israel. So, excuse me. Um, there's one thing I, I came upon in my studies. Uh, somebody broke up the name Israel and said Is is Isis from Egypt. Uh, since uh, Joseph was in Egypt, Joseph was in Egypt and it was called Israel. Is was Isis Ra the sun god and El Eloheinu, El God. And it's okay, like they're all somebody. So they're all monothe- early monotheisms. Well, that's a fun one. Yeah, I mean, just you know, somebody. That's a good one. That's a fun one. Gis, Ra, El. Okay. So I was saying that perhaps we can tell a story about this, that when Jacob's name is mentioned, he's in that uh, Jacob consciousness of what's in it for me. And when Israel is mentioned, I don't know if it holds up all the way, but it's a a good one. Um, Of course, biblical scholars try to parse it Biblical scholars, meaning from the academy, uh, many have tried to parse it so that they, they see the Torah as the weaving of different textual traditions and that there's a Jacob tradition and an Israel tradition that get woven into one story. I personally don't get much benefit out of that. Um, but you were asking, so that's another speculation. Jay? Yeah, I'm just, I, I have a very naive question. I apologize for it. Okay, but, I forgive you. But the, but the Torah... The source of the word, the source of the text, I'm getting mixed messages. I mean, I read the introduction, and, and I hear at times the source of the Torah is the word of God. Yet, in some of our classes, I hear, well, the Torah was, was written by man, or the Torah, you just said, is interwoven of different tales. 
So, so maybe you give some clarity for me so I can kind of put it in a context. Sure. What is the source of the text and the story? Is it, is it a direct word from God that was... <laughs> Thank you for asking. Um, I can only give you my answer. Good. <laughs> my answer is, it's impossible that um, a, dis, a non-embodied force would create language. Language is a human creation. So for me, it's impossible that someone could say, God dictated these. That for me is metaphorical language for someone who is inspired or who's tuned into the moral law of the universe. But regardless, for me, the idea that this is the word of God in some literal sense is impossible. Unless it's, it could be channeled. But as soon, no, no, Jay. As soon as it's channeled, it's channeled through someone's brain into someone's language. That is a human product. Inspiration is not verbal. Ver- verbalness comes after inspiration. Do you understand what I'm saying? So for me, it's so when we say the word of God, and somebody is trying to literally give me the impression that. This is an infallible document because it comes from an infallible source. I find that to be absurd. However, that doesn't mean I don't find these words necessarily, uh, I find, I, but that they might have been the product of inspired pres- uh, uh, production, absolutely. Right. But it's still a human form, which means that it's, it's not the final word. It can't be. No word, there's no language that's the final word. But the stuff we're reading here is the same Torah that you would take out in a synagogue. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's what's in the scroll. It's the five books of Moses. Yeah. And, and, and I say it's a human product because I say all culture, all language, all literature are the product of humans out of a certain context and place and time. There's no timeless moment. Now, like I say, you asked me. So because of my view of the world, that there's no timeless moment out of which something like this could emerge whole into our... It's just culture, humans, language, transmission doesn't work that way. So, by, but by investing ourselves in it, we make it holy. You understand? It's this 3,000-year tradition of working with these words that is what makes it so inspiring. And it's an inspired document to begin with. It's not the phone book, you know. Do we have, do we have any idea who, who the source of the text is? No idea. No, the source attributed to Moses. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, we have no historical evidence of it. We have no... Uh, so, and we also know... And we know this from scholarship, I'd say this is an established fact, that people in the ancient world wouldn't claim authorship of their book in the Near East. Rather, they would assign the authorship to some some, um, venerable ancient figure which would give their writing the the, uh, badge of authenticity, that it came from ancient times. So... So for that reason, there's, I, I have no reason to think that Moses wrote the Torah any more than I have a reason to think Moses didn't write the Torah. I just don't know. In a class, though, on Tuesday, I got the idea, it's a little bit different with the Quran that it, the, the 
word was channelized through Muhammad into, into words. That's right. Muhammad channeled these words. And, and that's a different story than this. That's different because right. it, it, there's, there's enough historical verification that he was the... He, didn't, he was illiterate, so other people would write down what he channeled. And from what the teachers have told us, the Sufi teachers, he was, the first time he had this experience, he was incredibly agitated. Were you there for that class? Um, he was incredibly agitated because he had no idea what was going on. And uh, it was very distressing because it was a, a mystical, uh, uh, sort of a break. Uh, uh, it was a psychological break with regular reality. And so anyway, that was fascinating to listen to. So... The Quran, uh, for all intents and purposes, I think it can be claimed that it was the dictation of um, Muhammad as he channeled these words that presumably yeah, came from Allah. Because, you know, if you listen to interviews with Leonard Cohen, who I know you're very uh, knowledgeable about, and even Bob Dylan, they both claim that they, don't, they got no idea where these words came from. Right, so let's talk about artistic inspiration. That's right. right. Uh, that's. I like to think that the first five books were uh, came through Moses, and the and the rest of the holy scriptures, all the prophets, and all the other stories were inspired writing through people. Okay, now um, one of the questions that the ancient rabbis have is how could Moses have written about his own death? Mm. Right. So even they are wondering. Now you could say, well. If God's involved, anything's possible, right? But I don't, I, don't, I don't believe in a supernatural deity who is messing with the uh, laws of nature. That's not my, that's not my religious, that's not my relig- religiosity. It's just, so, so I have no problem uh, saying that the Torah is a product of humans seeking God. So there are rabbis who attribute this to God, some of this. Absolutely, that is the that is the uh, the traditionalist viewpoint. Even if they don't believe it, they have to say it. I don't see that contradiction. Neither do I. It is it is God's word, but yeah. But then it's God's word. But then the people who want to be God's words also want it to be infallible and unchanging, and it doesn't work that way. So instead, it becomes what for me is a complete pretense of claiming that whatever interpretation they think is right is infallible and unchanging. Right, that's my problem. That's my problem. It's not how, I mean, as soon as I look at a Hebrew word and try to translate it for you into English, we're already 10 steps away. You know, and so, but that's not bad. That's what is. That's the gift of language. That's, we play in that beautiful playground of language. It's like, it's fantastic. And I don't need it to have some original and final source in order to want to play this Jewish, play this. Uh, does that help, Jay? Yeah, well said. I, I, I appreciate the clarity. Great. Good, good. I, yes, Miriam. I just read a story that's in... Chinese history and integrates myth and storytelling and all that and the whole take of it is good overtaking bad that the human soul 
And that's what we, you know, there's always this leaning towards justice and kindness. And <clears throat> I thought, oh, we need, we, it's as if we aren't willing to give enough credence to the oral history that we have, the oral sense of mm. what people, that people are capable of really digging deep into their beings and telling goodness. And that, to me, I feel that this is... Mm. Thank you. A Joya Timpanelli, who's a professional storyteller who comes to our classes sometimes, was telling me that why she loves folklore so much is that it's not fixed at all. You know, it's an oral tradition that uh, allows, that just invites a new version, you know, as opposed to the written word, which could become somehow fixed in our mind. The fixing of the written version, as I've said many times, allowed the Jews to survive in exile, right? Because we could care. Uh, and indigenous people, they have their stories and they have their holy mountain and they have their uh, seasonal rituals and they have their language and they have... Uh, people in exile needed a, a, a text to uh, live with that they could share anywhere in the world. And... Uh, uh, George Steiner wrote that in the absence of a homeland, the Torah became our homeland. Mm. And so it needed to be fixed and established. I really like that. In other words, this was, a, this was an act of genius, uh, fixing a tradition so that we could carry it with us. And of course, any solution to a problem carries with it, within it also inherent new problems. We become attached to the fixedness of, of this document. And so the Jewish tradition is, no, seek, inquire, interpret. And so that allows it to stay, um, uh, keep from being rigid, becoming ossified, you know, fossilized. So let me read this story to you. This is a good time for it. Okay. A story by Italo Calvino will help us realize the abstraction. In Serpents and Skulls, Mr. Palomar, what's Palomar mean, Doug? Mr. Palomar is visiting the ruins of Tula, ancient capital of the Toltecs. Here's the, here's the passage. It's a little long, but it's great. A Mexican friend accompanies him, an impassioned and eloquent expert on pre-Columbian civilizations who tells him beautiful legends about Quetzalcoatl. In Mexican archaeology, Every statue, every object, every detail of a bas-relief stands for something that stands for something else, that stands in turn for yet another something. Mr. Palomar's Mexican friend pauses at each stone, transforms it into a cosmic tale, an allegory, a moral reflection. A group of school children moves among the ruins, stocky boys with the features of the Indios, descendants perhaps of the builders of these temples, wearing a plain white uniform like Boy Scouts with blue neckerchiefs. The boys are led by a teacher not much taller than they are, and only a little more adult, with the same round, dark, impassive face. They climb the top steps of the pyramid, stop beneath the columns. The teacher tells what civilization they belong to, these columns, what century, what stone they are carved from, and then concludes 
we don't know what they mean. And the group follows him down the steps. At each step, each figure carved in a, in a relief or on a column, the teacher supplies some facts and then invariably adds, we don't know what it means. Though Mr. Palomar continues to follow the explanation of his friend acting as guide, he always ends up crossing the path of the schoolboys and overhearing the teacher's words. He is fascinated by his friend's wealth of mythological references. The play of interpretation, allegorical readings, have always seemed to him a supreme exercise of the mind. But he feels attracted also by the opposite attitude of the schoolteacher. What had at first seemed only a brisk lack of interest is being revealed to him as a scholarly and pedagogical position, a methodological choice by this serious and conscientious young man, a rule from which he will not swerve. The refusal to comprehend more than what the stones show us is perhaps the only way to evince respect for their secret. Trying to guess is a presumption, a betrayal of that true lost meaning. The boys go by. The teacher says, this is the wall of the serpents. Each serpent has a skull in its mouth. We don't know what they mean. <laughs> Mr. Palomar's friend cannot contain himself. Yes, we do. <laughs> it's the continuity of life and death. The serpents are life. The skulls are death. Life is life because it bears death with it. And death is death because there is no life without death. <laughs> the boys listen, mouths agape. Black eyes dazed. Mr. Palomar thinks that every translation requires another translation and so on. And yet he knows he could never suppress in himself the need to translate, to move from one language to another, from concrete figures to abstract words, to re-weave and reweave a network of analogies. Not to interpret is impossible, as refraining from thinking is impossible. Once the school group has disappeared around the corner, the stubborn voice of the little teacher resumes. No es verdad. It is not true what that senor said. We don't know what they mean. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? So that's how I feel about Torah study. I, I, I've often said over the years that I want us to approach it with a split screen, one with our analytical, historical, you know, uh, logical minds, and the other with our associative, allegorical, interpretive, poetic. Because what I like about this passage is that the author isn't putting down the, um, the young teacher. Uh, he's saying that's another way to respect this, to say we don't know. And then the other way to respect it is to do what his Mexican friend does. And uh, I like doing both. Right? I, uh, um, and then uh, it's important when we're studying Torah, as I've said many times, to identify which one we're doing. So what do we know about King Hezekiah in the 8th century BCE? Well, we have this interesting archaeological tablet that, he's, that is signed by him, da-da-da, and corroborate. That is totally fascinating. And then we can do the other thing about Hezekiah and what he represents in our in our developed tradition, and we can have both. You know, it's just like going to Jerusalem and you're looking at the stones, and no, we don't know if it's from 10th century BCE or 6th century BCE. On the one hand, on the other hand, we can tell a whole story 
And um, I think that uh, uh, in, in the class on Islam and Christianity and Judaism on Tuesday, um, I was talking about how there are histories written that want to project, retroject a, a um, blissful time before all our human conflict happened. And that for me, that's ahistorical. There's no evidence that we haven't always been primates. <coughs> right? Right. Um, on the other hand, the beauty of... So, so telling a story about once upon a time when everything was beautiful is this part of our brain because it gives us a vision of how we want to be, of the possibility. We've got to get ourselves back to the garden. It, you know what I'm saying? Uh, but but it, the problems start when historians confuse their, um, their uh, envisioning, imagining with what we know from history. And all I want to do is say, just identify which you're doing. You know, uh, and so someone wrote to me about this, and I wrote back and I said, it was Miriam Berg, um, I, I, I said, I think that each of us human beings, almost each one of us, is blessed with some kind of cellular memory of when we were in the womb, or when our mother just, if we were, you know, enveloped us in love, which our bodies remember. Right. But then we make them the mistake of trying to project that onto history. You know, there was a time. And again, I'm just looking in myself for the clarity of trying to be able to know which kind of um, uh, investigation I'm doing. So that's an excursion, but it's all about how I approach this. Yes, Jeff? One parallel comment on, on the story you just read with, from Native American perspectives, when, when their sacred funerary objects have been returned because of <coughs> federal laws, somebody wrote, the return of mystery is the end in itself. Mm -hmm. That they got their sacred objects back, but that brought back to them their open-endedness. The return mm -hmm. of mystery is the end in itself. That's beautiful. Wow. Thank you. I just wanted to say, last night there was a program, PBS, on the uh, nuclear waste and where they're going to put it and what, what marker they're going to put on it that might someone be able to decipher in 4,000 years. Wow, that's and, fascinating. And it reminded me of the stones. And I don't want them to say, I don't know what it means, and then there's a 900 nuclear warheads under there. So they're trying to, to figure out what symbol could they use that... And we're doing it, and they, the, the heartwarming part of it is that we're doing it for our, the future of hu humanity in the future, that they shall know that this is a bad spot, don't go there, you know. That's so fascinating. Really Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So, yeah. you know, uh, 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 Jeff, that, that sort of illuminates how the West, how, how, how European-centric uh, cultures would take those objects and then place them in a museum to, and want to see them and understand them with no appreciation of that they're in fact like the, the, living, the living cultural yeah. force. Out of context. Oh, yeah. wow. 
Take yeah. all the trees, put them in a tree museum. <laughs> Take all the trees, put them in a tree museum. Right. Well, gee, Joni Mitchell is the one to follow then. So now let's go back to our text. We're on page 307. Oh, yes, yes, Harris. Um, you mentioned that we have a need to translate, we have a need to investigate. It's our humanness, yeah. In the story, if I was following it, the boys and the, and the person, they left it alone. They didn't, they didn't delve into the meaning. They said, we don't know what it means, and they left it like that. Are these real people? Yes. And if it is, what, what kind of spiritual development happens from that kind of a culture? And what no, are we missing out on? The teacher left it that way. The, the teacher left it that way. <laughs> the teacher? It's the teacher who's saying we don't know what it means right. to the and kids. that allows the, the students to imagine. think, oh, I wonder what it means. Hmm. They can't imagine what it means. They the teacher is the guide. The teacher is the... There are two... He, it, it, no, 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 I didn't mean the guide in the story. Yeah. The teacher is the guide in life. You, you look upon the teacher for guidance. Mm -hmm. right. The teacher is teaching. He's teaching that... Don't, don't investigate, don't, don't translate this sign. So what does that mean? No, I disagree. Well, you disagree with yeah. what? No, 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 no. That's what the teacher's trying to do. I think he's trying to allow the, the students to make up their own meanings. Oh, that? Oh, I didn't hear any of that, but I, I mean, it makes sense. But that you, that's, putting, that's putting a translation into that, unless it says it. So no, 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 here's, here's what I got out of it. The author, Calvino, is writing a parable. He's using an experience he had to set up the two possible ways of approaching these stones. And he describes, he doesn't, I mean, you can sense that he privileges the interpretive one over the we don't know what it means, which is the objective truth in terms of literal. I heard it the other way around. Oh, that he was... <laughs> That the, te the teacher and the boys knew a better truth than, yes, than the children. Oh, good. So it's just my bias. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Absolutely nice Beautiful. You're not alone. And then I, then I think, to what end? Like, we, we you, where's my page before? Uh, the, the Torah is a product of human seeking God. Yeah. Okay. So the the, the philosophy of this teacher, or the dynamics of the teacher and the student, is to what ends? What are they trying to accomplish by not doing this whole translation thing that we do? Yeah, what, well, the, what do you think, Harris? I think there's something to be said about not investigating every little nuance in, in life. Yep. Yep. We're picking it apart. Where would yep. we get if we just did that? Well, maybe there's, that's why I talk about a time for both. I think a balanced intellect and soul is one that takes time to just appreciate our not knowing and time to uh, trip the light fantastic about all the ways that this could be so. And then return to the not knowing. And then, so I see it, uh, that's how I see it. It's like the experiential versus the intellectual. I mean, perhaps. Mm -hmm. you know, experiential like, versus intellectual I think of also as the poetic mind versus the uh, rational mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I'm interested in both is what, but that's my takeaway uh, so I appreciate the way you're framing it 
I think that both fit into the human soul. We have to have both to nourish the full, well, you know. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And I think this book is really about God seeking humans because it's through this engagement that we're all engaging with God. That's right. And Abraham Joshua Heschel wrote two books of his poetic theology. One is called Man in Search of God, and the other book he wrote is called God in Search of Man. (laughs) And they're beautiful. I mean, they're not books you sit down and read in one sitting. They're like... They're like giant, a full meal each time you uh, read a page of him. Um, What's his name again? Abraham Joshua Heschel. Uh, he's the rabbi it, who was Martin Luther King's closest colleague. Uh, and as it turns out, this uh, Monday, this week, is both Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday and the yard site of Abraham Joshua Heschel. What, what book did he write? That he wrote a lot of books, but two of his books. One is called Man in Search of God. Oh, yeah, right. Okay, and the other yeah. one's called God in Search of Man. So, so I like Karen. Go, yeah. So, may, so depending on your point of view, see, I, my conviction, which I'll never be able to prove, nor do I feel like convincing anybody of it, because I don't see any point in that, is that the universe is, is, a, is filled with a consciousness, that there is, desi- there is an inherent desire in the universe to create and then to be known and reflected back to. I feel that's the nature of consciousness, and my conviction is that consciousness in some utterly, utterly un- way beyond my understanding pervades creation and wants us to find it. And so that would be my way of saying in my vocabulary that God is in search of us through sort of tantalizing us with clues and, you know, but I don't mean that in a literal uh, instrumental way, like God's hiding behind the universe saying, find me, but that, I mean that um, poetically, metaphorically. Uh, So again, Nothing can be proven, which is why I love Heschel so much, who, who could easily write it in both directions, in as India, it were. In India, they said God uh, it was eternal. No, there was no uh, form, kind of like, you know, the Genesis. And then they, they call it, that God had a, what they call a lahar, which means in English means a whim. And the whim was, who am I? And then the universe exploded into existence. And that the universe is God's way of learning and know who all possibilities of everything that can be created, everything that exists is is or is God learning what he the limitlessness even with the limitations what could be done. Beautiful. That's a beautiful story that expresses you know himself as, as infinitely limited and infinitely unlimited. Right. That's a beautiful story to express what I was trying to express also. Um, another way to say it is that each of us, every human being, is an ex- and every other cre- creature, and we, might ex- we should extend that to every, everything in the universe, is an expression of infinite consciousness. Except that my, I'm just an expression of it. So it's like 
it's the blind man and the elephant, right? It's like, I only have this much of a slice of the, the whole. And I like to imagine that if every human being all at once could share their perception, we might approximate, you know, divine consciousness. It's like a stained glass window. I worked in stained glass architectural church and mostly synagogue windows. And each person is like a color of glass. The light that comes through is white. It's God, pure energy, light, life force. And each one of us is a different color piece of glass, all put together making one big picture of, of light, God's light, and all his different glories. And that white light can make so many colors. That's so beautiful. Yeah. That's so beautiful. And every person is a shard of glass. It's like, I and felt like I had a, a, a piece of light I could hold in my hand. It was a and, gift. And I'll extend your analogy to say, and we, we stupid humans have also the capacity to break that window. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then um, you gotta fix it. And then, yeah. Can I, can I feel the onion a little bit? Yeah, one second, Jay. I, I'm, I'm ready for you, but I just want to say one more thing about... Um, so, um, in talking about God, we are always reduced or expanded to metaphor. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, it just, that, there's no other way to, to talk about that which has no finitude. So that's what I wanted to say. And that's why discussions about what God is that try to do it the, the with the other side of our that other screen are are um, interesting, but when they claim finality, this is what it is. We're always in trouble. Right. Uh, what did you want to say, Jay? Just to just to cover another metaphor, I think the metaphor is absolutely right on target, but it's for our own look at the metaphor for our own spiritual journey. Whatever the metaphor is, it's just not this thing. It's for our own spiritual journey. But and all we have is ourself. That's all our own, my only reference point is my experience. It's like so. Of course, I'm talking about myself when I talk and my journey when I try to talk about the universe as Even well. If you look at Passover as a metaphor, you know, who's who's our Pharaoh? Who do we want to yeah. get get away from as a slave? And we and we and we all have our Pharaohs. But but. I was very interested in what you said about universal consciousness and God's consciousness. And um, I wasn't quite sure what you mean by consciousness. And is, and is, and is that all there is? I mean, there, there could be a semantical, there could be more than consciousness going on out there to begin with. But I just wanted to get some, some um, sense of when you say universal consciousness, is that a cognitive <coughs> type of thing? No, it's awareness. When I say consciousness, I mean awareness. You mean awareness. That the universe is pervaded by awareness. But, but, but awareness on a cognitive level. In other words, for me, for whatever reason, and it may be just my brain's wiring or whatever, the universe is not random or accidental or purposeless. I agree. And even if, but the point is, for me, is that even if it is, for us as humans to fulfill our, our potential, we have to act as if it is. Right. And so I'm never going to be able to prove it, but it's certainly the most uh, invigorating uh, perspective for me. Right. Awareness is, 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 is settled for me. Okay. That's a, that's a good term. Okay. So now in our story, 
there's an amazing shift here. We're on page 307. Now then, I'm back at verse 5. Mm-hmm. Your two sons, born to you in the land of Egypt, before my arrival in Egypt, they are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be to me like Reuben and Shimon. But your progeny, whom you engender after them, are yours. They will be called by their brothers' names in their family allotment. Jacob is in his, he's in his right mind, you would say, in our language. He's just, he's, he's engaged, he's like doing his last will and testament. He's, and then it says... That's an interesting thing to say with what he does with his right and left. I know. Va'ani and I, bevoimi padan, as I was coming from Padan, Rachel died in the land of Canaan, on the road, only a stretch of ground before reaching Ephrath. I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, uh, that is Bethlehem. Uh, what's going on? Remember, we've talked, covered this in uh, past years. Because then it says, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he asked, who are these? I, I don't know, my take on this is that we have a dying man and he's in between the worlds and he's, he's, he's talking and all of a sudden, first he's talking about, look, your father is fading. First of all, he's talking about God appeared to me in Luz on the way to Bethel and promised me. Now, oh, and Rachel, I was, I, and she died. Who are these? The two boys that he just identified. There's something so poignant in this storytelling for me. Um, And Joseph said to his father, they're my sons whom God has given me here. And Jacob said, he said, uh, or it's Israel perhaps, because that was the last way he was referred to. Bring them to me, pray that I may bless them. Israel's eyes had grown clouded with age. He could no longer see. Joseph brought them over to him, whereupon he kissed and hugged them. And Israel then said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again. And here God has shown me your kids as well. Joseph then removed them from his knees. And you know we're in a story here. I mean, these kids would be 30 years old by now if you were doing the counting that we're trying to do. Um, and bowed down before him to the ground. Then Joseph took the two of them, Ephraim with his right hand to Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand to Israel's right. And he brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and placed it on Ephraim's head, even though he was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his arms, though Manasseh was the firstborn. And he then blessed Joseph, saying, The God before whom walked my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, the God who has shepherded me ever since I came into being until this day, Mm -hmm. the angel who has rescued me from all harm, bless these lads. Mm -hmm. Through them let my name and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, (laughs) ever be recalled, and let them greatly multiply within the land. When Joseph saw that his father had placed his right hand on Ephraim's head, it seemed wrong to him. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head onto the head of Manasseh. Joseph said to his father, Not that way, father. 
This is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But as her father refused, saying, I know, my son, I know. Yadati vni, yadati. I know, my son, I know. He too shall become a people, and he too shall be great. Yet his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, or through you, shall the people of Israel give their blessing. Uh, or through you, Yisrael shall give their blessing, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. And he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Hmm. It's ironic. Israel, I'll just finish. Israel then said to Joseph, I am dying now, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your ancestors. And I have given you first among your brothers the Shechem mountain ridge, which I won from the Amorites with my sword and my bow. Wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. wait. <laughs> right. And that is the end of his words to Joseph. Uh, so, for people who do the academic scholarly thing, they go wild saying, well, this piece must be from the J tradition and this piece must, because it's so disjointed. Or is it? Oh, but it's so when resonant you, with what happened to him, right? The blessing twist. The blessing that he got from his father when his eyes... This, if this is such magnificent storytelling. That's what I want to. That's what I want to share with you, my Carol. That the, the book was written by a committee of second sons. <laughs> <laughs> Carol, what do you want to say? Or, or more than second sons. What I want to say is, it happens everywhere. It happens in every generation. That the father recognizes one of the sons. And it causes so much trouble, but it's still in all, it's that son that has the mission, that knows where to go, that carries God for us. And so the, and that's, I mean, that's the way it is. You, children are not, all children are not leaders of human beings. You know, the, the, there's something so wonderful to me about the father, and it doesn't mean that the other child, and even said that the other child isn't worthy. Right, that's the same this, about Esau yeah, and the same about Ishmael. Right. That right. this is the one who has this job, and this is important to talk about this now. I love that. Have you ever been with a person who's near the end when all of a sudden they're talking to somebody that, exactly. that you don't see? Right. I mean, it's the most, it's, it's such a repeated human experience. They're talking to, who are right. they talking to? And I he, heard the angel of death. Is that possible? It, I've seen it three times. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I have all the answers. <laughs> I actually seen this three times. Who is yeah. that person? I remember it like it was yesterday. Yeah, tell me. Time. My father was one of them. What he happened? In bed, and he's lying in bed. He's, 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 you know, he doesn't have much more to live. And he kept saying, who is that? Who is that at the bed? I said, where? At the end of the bed. Who is at the end of the bed? My grandmother the same way. I was with her when she died. Who's at the end of the bed? Who's in the room? These are true stories. Well, and, they're not unusual stories. And, and so, so, so I probed a little bit. What is this? And 
uh, someone told me it's the age of death, and I and that's what stays with me, and that's what I I believe. Well, you'll find out when it's your turn. <laughs> and you won't have to ask. Uh, you won't have to ask. Because <laughs> send us a postcard, right? Send us a sign. We want to know. You mean? Listen, whoever told you it was the angel of death, good for them. Right. They don't know. They live to tell the tale. And, and I believed it. <laughs> good for you. <laughs> and I'm surprised. I'm really surprised that this has taken everybody by surprise, to tell you the truth. That what is? That, that the angel of death isn't, isn't a well-known kind of concept. No, 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 no. Everybody here knows about the angel of death. Oh, okay. It's that that guy th- is saying, who is he talking to, the angel of death? H- how do you know? Right. I mean, <laughs> I mean right that's there. what I mean. We all know about the angel of death. It's a great, uh, you know, it makes for great New Yorker cartoons. <laughs> what can I tell you? It's, it's like... Grim The most recent one was the angel of death. It comes in a sweatsuit. And he says, it's casual Friday. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, just one second, Harry. So, Jay, the angel of death has to be, we don't know. We just don't know. So the poor told you it was the angel of death. Okay. We don't know, but it has a bit of credibility. <laughs> if, if you're there and the person sees someone, now they could be delirious. Yeah, but most people, most, but most people don't see the angel of death. They report they're clearly talking to their deceased spouse or to their mom and dad or to, that's what it usually is. Usually they're seeing somebody that they've been wanting to see again. Does it mean that they, that person is an actual angelic entity who is waiting for them to rejoin them on the other side? Or does it mean that they are, their deepest yearnings are appearing at that point? We don't know. I'm very curious. And when I'm 120, I want to find out. Uh, <laughs> no, it can also be themselves, because I've heard that when you die, your soul slowly leaves your body and raises up. And when my husband died, at the moment that he died, I looked up to see if I could see his soul. Mm-hmm. I could not. Mm-hmm. You may not be able to see it with your eyes. <laughs> right. it, you might have been using the wrong faculty. I once had a you may have had to use your heart, as it were. Right. See, because we are once again confusing ourselves with the, bi- with the difference between objective sensory information and our astounding ability to sense things with, in a different, with, with uh, a di- our, our sixth sense, right? The part of us that is not, that, you know, we have it. We don't know what it is. You can't quantify it. You can't, you can't calculate it. But we get continually mixed up, Jay, about this. So, there's a back saying, to, yeah. There's a saying, real quick, uh, we're not human beings having a spiritual experience, we're spiritual beings having a human experience. I like that. I like that. So, let's reflect on J- Jacob Israel's deathbed experience. Oh, Harris, I'm sorry, you were going to say something, please. Go for it. It's part of it's off the subject, which is uh, in, in our Torah, do we ever give to adopted sons? 
stuff? Is there stories about that? Uh, and I just um, heard a, a, a TV, sh a, a radio show about in Japan. It's a big, it's a very popular to adopt like 30, 35 year old men to run their corporations. So I was just wondering in, in our in our Bible, is it, are they is there any adoption of men? Because of course I'm even less likely with women. Uh, in order to run the herds or to carry on? That is a great question, because that would be making them your formal, your legal son gives them the rights of inheritance. I but understand that's what's that. that's happening here, right? Isn't Jacob really right. adopting uh, a friend? Right? Right? He's blood? Yeah. These are his grandchildren. Yeah, right. But he's the, adopting them as if they were sons. You're saying they're mine. He's bumping them up. They're mine. You're right. They're like, they're mine for the purposes of inheritance. Yes. Yeah. That's right. So this is an example, even though they are his blood relatives, he's giving them the status of being his own son rather than his it's grandchildren. That it still goes on. That what? It still goes on. What it is interesting. It still goes on. That's what's right. happening in the culture I just mentioned. That's right. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Harry. It also happened a lot before we had um, gay marriage is that if two people of the same gender wanted some inheritance rights, one wouldn't... Adopt the, other. adopt the other. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's how, that was the way gay men managed oh. to have some legal uh, yeah. status. Um, yes. Okay, it says over here, so the older one, <coughs> the older one is, um, right, starts with the M. Menashe. Menashe. But over here, it lists them, Ephraim and Manasseh. So they're, every time they give their names, they always say Ephraim first. That's right, because of this passage. Because he put his right hand even that on it front. Even though it comes before. Even though what comes before? In the reading of the story, <coughs> when they talk about the two sons. Before the blessing. Yeah. Before the blessing. It's still a crime in Menashe. Yeah, it's, yeah. E it's even so. And now, to this day, if you, if, you, if you give the traditional blessing for sons on Friday night, on Shabbat, you say, may God make you like Ephraim and Menashe. That is the traditional blessing for boys. When you, the traditional yeah. blessing for daughters is, may God make you like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. But it comes from this passage. I'm trying to, uh, is there a moral teaching that um, accounts for this particular uh, symmetry, particular repetition with the hands and the who's who, and the older being mistaken with the younger? Uh, I mean, this is a lot of storytelling to refrain as a refrain. Yes, it's the refrain of Genesis. And, and I'm mm -hmm. trying to see. So let's talk the about it again. It. And we can't. The Torah doesn't tell us the lesson, uh, so we have to extrapolate, interpret. Um, and one thing we can say is what the 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 Boy Scout teacher says is we don't know what it means. And the other thing we can say is what the Mr. Palomar's Mexican friend says. So let's look. Cain and Abel. Cain is the older, and God prefers Abel's offering. Uh, 
and then um, uh, the next uh, pair is uh, we we go to uh, Abraham and uh, uh, his two sons his older is Ishmael and the younger is Isaac and clearly the promise is going through Isaac and then Isaac has the twins Jacob and Esau and the promise is going through Jacob the younger even and who has to who has to yeah. And, and Rebecca has to subvert the system in order to make that happen. And then among um, uh, Jacob's children, Joseph, the youngest, and then Benjamin comes along later, is the one whom, in whom the promise is invested. And uh, uh, then um, uh, here, Ephraim and Manasseh is the last example of that in the book of Genesis. It's consistent. And it never stops. King David also, right? He King David's the run. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, it keeps going. It's Judah. They're, they're, I've been reading a whole bunch of stuff recently about how how Judah becomes though it's not Joseph who right who okay. right. But in the tales of Genesis, in this tale it, it, it's certainly he's very important. Right. And Judah is the fourth of Leah's sons, uh, Reuben and Shimon and Levi are superseded by Judah. So once again, Reuben would be the one to be the leader, and he, he is not. He is not because Reuben, my firstborn, you are my strength and the first fruit of my vigor, excessive in exalting yourself, excessive in strength, licentious one, boil up like water no more, oh, you mounted your father's bed, then defiled my couch. He, Oh, okay, well, we'll talk about that in just a minute. So, to continue with Bob's inquiry, my, my take is that the, um, uh, is because also God rescues the slaves who have no power, those who wouldn't receive the inheritance would also be, in ancient Israel, uh, that if you, were not, if you were not a firstborn, you were essentially on your own. You had to become a hired hand. You had to, you could hang on with the family. Uh, and there were, we read in the book of Judges, um, these sort of bands of, and this will be, think about primates, okay? There were bands of um, uh, roving young males who would be conscripted into militias, who would be, and they were trouble. And we learn about them in the book of Judges. And again, and so, um, Something about the Torah wants to re remind us that everyone is created in God's image, that you never know wh whether, where God's promise lay. It could be in the runt of the litter. Um, uh, I take it as uh, a people who were younger, who were, now there's a theory that I read about in college, so it's been around for a long time, um, George Mendenhall, I even remember the author, he looks up the word Habiru, Hebrew. Why are we called Hebrews? What, what is that word? And he finds a cognate word in uh, Semitic languages called Habiru. Uh, and the Habiru seem to be disenfranchised, landless people. <laughs> Not as a proper noun, but as a descriptive. Abraham the Habiru. Uh, and he developed a really great theory, which we have no idea whether it's actually true or not. But it was so compelling 
that being identified as Hebrews meant being identified with the landless, disenfranchised, wandering, wandering factions of, of the society who rest, W-R-E-S-T, a landholding for themselves and, and worship a God who frees the slaves. Mm-hmm. The promise of the land. This was George Mendenhall's theory, which I love. Um, uh, and so those are my takes on it, Bob. Um, there's something about Judaism that says... The culture of the second... The of culture the, of the second son, of the second child, the, uh, underdog. Surprise, you can't tell for sure what light you're going to ascribe, uh, achieve. A culture or, of the disenfranchised... The former slaves. But it Rachel teaches and us we should and, uh, what's her name? aspire because it's not written down. It doesn't come as a birthright. Right. It means that maybe you're the disenfranchised who will aspire. I think it's sort of a culture of hope in that sense. I think so. And this, this theme is throughout our literature. And That's what I'm saying, especially throughout the Torah. And our movies. I mean, I mean, I mean look at Tennessee Williams' uh, Oh, you're going into um, our, cult, our American culture. Our American culture, or, or any, any, any Western culture. I mean, look at Tennessee Williams' Counter-Hartington Root, where Brick was the favorite son, more or less, and the other son. Look at, I don't know if you remember, Cool Hand Blue, the movie. Or maybe, um, well, how about East of Eden, East, I was say, which is based on the b- Genesis right. story. Right, I was going so, to say East of Eden, but my take is that the moral thing isn't, the moral thing is, and look at all the, in this, in this literature, there's, there's, there's a, um, a compassion and a kindness in those brothers who emerge. And there's a sort of like a deceitfulness or a greed in those brothers that that don't emerge. Doesn't hold up. Esau is generous and um, doesn't forgiving and doesn't carry a grudge, and Jacob is devious and he wins. And he wins. Sorry. Let's see, Julia, you were going to say something before. Yeah. <laughs> no, the movies are great, aren't they? But that's that's our yeah. Yeah, we read about three weeks ago about um, uh, who was it? Joseph uh, fell in love with with uh, Jacob. Falls in love Jacob, with Rachel, Rachel, the younger. Yeah, and but the the other one. Uh, Leah. It was Leah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Leah was favored by by Hashem. With babies. Because she was the unloved she, one. Yeah, but she she had like in the Torah we read that she had more like connection with. That was our interpretation, divine, right? Then Rachel was more about her own physical beauty, and so he was, you know, again it was that trade off. He wanted Rachel first. He got Leah first. Even with the women, they got switched. That's true. Right. That's true. Even with Leah and Rachel, they got switched. And uh, that, that's right. Very good. Harris? Yeah. I can't keep track of all this, but just a question. All these uh, second boys. Yes. Younger sons. Were they mostly um, 
maybe um, next week. Were they mostly um, more apt to, to do a better job taking over whatever the family business is? Um, not necessarily, except that the family business was realizing God's promise was. in the world. That's right. And in that sense, they see, appear to be. Um, so that's a good insight. It wasn't hip, nilly or whatever it is, second son. It was like she said, it, there was a purpose in it, and they were, they were more, they had more aptitude. No? Um, I don't, I, I hear you. I don't know if it's about aptitude per se. Oh, people have to go, so. Yeah, we'll stop in five minutes. Um, once again, um, this isn't a textbook, and it won't um, it won't give up its secrets to the answer. Um, what we have here is a pattern that repeats itself over and over, a motif, and then we have the question, why? And so our, our answers are all good answers. But if we, if we, if we like give ourselves a, a, a migraine trying to come up with the right answer, that is going to just give you a bad night's sleep. Um, if, if you see what, I say, what I'm saying. Uh, well, okay, see you soon. Yes, Lenny. As a second son, me... This has been really very interesting. Uh, <laughs> I'm a second son too. Thinking about my brother and thinking about myself. Same with me, by the way. You're a second son? Bob, you're a younger son? Oh, yeah. You are too? <laughs> That's fascinating. We're still hoping. <laughs> He's the oldest, this guy. Yeah. We're going to overthrow you. <laughs> Only son. Rob, what's your story? Only son. Only son. Sisters? Sister, one sister. Yeah. Older? Three sisters. Younger sisters. Are you the oldest? No. Uh-huh. I'm the oldest, but I'm also the second. I was adopted into a Jewish family. My birth mother had one daughter, so I'm second. But then the parents that adopted me, I was their first child. So I grew up as the oldest, and they didn't tell me I was adopted, so I thought I was a Polish Jew. I find out I'm like Irish Catholic, <laughs> French Canadian. So you ought to write your Torah because it's going to be a darn good story. <laughs> and I, I grew up as a, as, with the identity of a Jew, and then I went around the world and learned about other stuff, and I, I said, Judaism is it. That's it for me. I don't care about my bloodline or any of that. I, my heart, I'm, I was raised a Jew, and it's my family. Like you were asking, you know, bringing people into the faith. I was born, I was given a name at, you know, at a few days old, and if I was a guy, I would have had a bris, and, and uh, you know, I grew up with a Jewish identity, and I don't care about the genetics. My, this is my family. This is my family. I'm glad. <laughs> Me too. Judaism rocks. <laughs> <laughs> that, we're going to put that on our <laughs> sign. <laughs> I, th- I see a, one thing that really is very significant to me about Judaism, after all my studies, is that it's a very hum- the most humane religion I've ever come across. It allows us to be human. And, it, and it, to me, the whole Torah is man's struggle with his humanity and divinity. Right. 
the struggle between his divinity, the, the temptation to want to this way or to do God's will or to do my will or to do, you know, switch the kids. Or, you know, it's the, the, the humanity and the divinity, the struggle, even arguing with God. Right. I mean, it's, it's a very intimate relationship to be able to argue with your creator. That gets back to the Jacob and Israel dichotomy, which begs for a story like that. Right. You know, the, the, war, the, the warring self or the multiple selves that we will... Constantly question everything. And to constantly question. Yes, with not, not always get answers. It's not, not meant... And one more thing I'd like to say, I'm, okay. I don't want to speak too much, but I had a teacher tell us that uh, our brain, you know, we, we fight in our mind. We can go back and forth. If you can't make a decision with your brain, ask your heart, because it only has one answer. But your brain will always go back and forth, but if you look to your heart for the answer, it'll never guide you the wrong way, and it'll only have one answer, the solution. In here. Thank you. I'm going to remember that. Brain always fights. And that's another, yep, yep. So, uh, I, I, I want to say, yeah, the, this is just the beginning. Um, so, we don't know what it means, and yes, we do. And uh, I love that. I love that. Uh, next week, I'm going to... Um, oh, by the way, I was asked to announce that this new art show, the opening is on Sunday from 12 to 2. And also this Saturday at 1 o'clock, we're showing a documentary called 13th by Ava DuVernay about the uh, history of the criminalization of blackness since oh the emancipation of the slaves. It's Martin Luther King weekend, and it's a very important documentary. Uh, that's at one o'clock. It's called Thirteenth on Shabbat. Is this, uh, um, yeah, uh, uh, it's for Martin Luther King weekend. We're. Um, it doesn't have to be potluck because Hurley Ridge Market, the Epstein family, is bringing lunch in memory of Bill Epstein. They wanted to honor him by bringing lunch, so there's going to be a big lunch here on Saturday. The email did say pop. Yeah. I know. Oh, it did? Yeah. Oh, Anna forgot to change it. Okay, bring more food. Ah. Yeah. And yeah. Before the dark here. Right. Right. 10 o'clock is Shabbat services. 12 is lunch. 1 is film. Come to any or all. And, and discussion. Is, wasn't it something with the... the so next, it's all on the computer. It's all on the website. Next week, I'm gone from Sunday through Thursday at a retreat that I go to annually with a lot of beautiful colleagues of mine. And so the Parsha is Parshat Shmot. The class is meeting next Thursday, and Karen is convening. <laughs> so we'll read through the portion. We'll carry some of the themes through that we've been talking about. And, um, Have fun. Have fun. That's her promo. That's her promo. And then I'll be back the next week. Uh, and if you, oh, Jeff, yes. Just wanted to, not to make this a comparison with Native Americans, but please do. There is a real story to your parable that you read in that I happened to be at a lecture several years ago where 
one of the very few people who are advanced in reading the glyphs of the Toltec Mayas, and she read aloud the glyphs and what they meant and how they referred back to different eras of the of the teacher was real. So in fact, it, whether it was made up or not, but she she read it. The PhD from from Harvard uh, in their anthropology department. What fun! And it was all little stops, but in the year of this and so forth and so on, and they corroborated it with other steely. Oh, so she studied their their written yeah. uh, symbols and Correct. just like hieroglyphs, I suppose. Yeah. So That's magnificent. If so you want to make a con make a contribution for this class, there's a little basket for you. Thank, Thank you. you Rabbi.